All right, we are continuing our short series through the book of Nahum. And tonight we will be covering chapter two, uh, chapter two of Nahum. And as we've been going through this book, we've been seeing a lot about God's judgment coming upon this great city of Nineveh. And the great city of Nineveh is part of the Syrian Empire. And the Syrian Empire during this time was the big bad bully on the block. Right, that is the is the empire that everyone is afraid of. Right, they they make one snarl, everyone cowers to their knees. And here, God gives a prophecy, uh, a a message to His people, and He tells them that He has a plan, a plan to save them, a plan to redeem them, a plan to show Nineveh, to show Assyria that they are nothing before him. They are weak and utterly powerless before him. And that God is the one true God, the one true sovereign king of the world. And we've been going through this. And so we've been talking a lot about God's judgment. And we've been seeing how God's judgment is actually a good thing. It's something that helps show that God is righteous. It helps us appreciate God's grace more. It's what demonstrates to us that the God that we serve is indeed a good God. We continue on to that theme tonight. And and the main theme of tonight's message is we're going to take a look upon this. Take a look upon more about God's judgment upon sin. Is we're going to take, we're going to see God's redemption plan, His plan of redemption for humanity, for His people. His redemption plan seeks to reverse the effects of sin, seeks to reverse it, it made to, to to rewind what sin has done. Right? God here is is doing something miraculous, something awesome, something beautiful, with the way He works and redeems in this world. God saves his people in such a wonderful way, in such a beautiful way that, that it, truly, it truly glorifies his name. And that's why I've called this series a poetic justice, because it's something poetic about the way God judges evil and reverses its effect. And we've seen this kind of theme throughout scripture we, we we love this kind of theme because this shows us just how great god is if if you guys have ever read uh the book of esther for example the, the book of esther is all about reversal you you see the book of esther for the first half it's a, it builds up a climax but right when god does something miraculous where he intervenes and saves his people the jews everything unravels and reverses itself in the book of esther and this becomes a paradigm of how God works throughout history. And, and there's something about poetic justice that we in our human hearts, when we hear it, when we see it, it, it just, it strikes a string there, right? Think about certain movies, right? Uh, for instance, uh, Avengers Endgame. And when, when, when at the end, when, when the main big bad villain, when he, the way he lost was the exact same way he won in the, in the beginning, right? It's through the snap of a finger. And there's a poetic justice to that that we appreciate, that we just find beautiful. And that's just the way God works. And God here in, in the book of Nahum, 
he doesn't just tell us that he's going to save Israel. He doesn't just tell us, say, hey, I'm going to save you and Assyria is going to fall. He actually gives a full detailed account of what's going to happen, of how it's going to go down. And, and, and what, we're, what we're going to see here in Nahum chapter 2 is we're going to see a full-blown mission statement from God. A, a business plan, a, a, a project management plan in its finest details. God here is not just giving us a vision. He's giving us how it's going to be executed. And so turn with me in your Bibles to Nahum chapter 2. Actually, Nahum, we're going to start with Nahum chapter 1, verse 15. And we're going to go through the entire chapter 2. And in this passage... In this passage, we're going to find five essential ingredients to God's glorious battle plan. Five essential ingredients to God's glorious battle plan. And the first ingredient is this. This clicker is not working. Is it clicked on? All good. Okay, here we go. God's glorious message. And we see this in verse 15. We recovered this verse last time, but it serves as a transition verse for us into chapter 2. So I'm going to read it again. Um, and it says here, chapter 1, verse 15, Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off now in the hebrew bible chapter 1 verse 15 is actually chapter 2 verse 1 it is actually belongs in chapter 2 in the hebrew bible but that doesn't matter because you know when scripture was written it, it didn't have chapter division it didn't have verses and so the hebrew bible decided to include this verse as part of chapter 2 but in the english bible we we moved it to chapter chapter 1 that's okay but it's to show you I show you this because I want you to see that this serves as a transition verse for us, a verse that connects chapter one to chapter two. And what we see here is that God has a message, right? God has a message. Behold him who brings good news, who publishes peace. And this reminds us, this verse reminds us that there is a battle plan that's about to unfold. And this battle plan will fall upon Nineveh. And there will be horrors and judgment against this great city. And that judgment, that judgment towards Nineveh is meant to be a glorious message for God's people. And we see exactly that. That the detailed battle plan against Nineveh becomes a glorious message for God's people. It becomes a message that tells them that God is restoring peace. To his people. God's restoring joy to his people. God is restoring worship to his people. God here is not just in this, not just in the game of saving his people, but in the game of redeeming them and restoring them into their rightful position. And in order to do that, he must reverse the effects of sin. And so we see that here, God has a glorious message for his people. And this message is a judgment against God's enemies. And so we reach then the second ingredient, which this clicker is either not working or 
we're just gonna have I'm just gonna have to rely on you, Justin. God's glorious message here. So God's glorious message we see here starting in chapter two, verses one and two. And what we get here is really the the mission statement. The mission statement of God. What is God planning? What is the purpose behind all of this? Read here with me, verse one. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, wash the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. God here has a purpose, a reason behind his judgment, a reason behind why he has this plan of judgment against Nineveh. And his purpose is to restore the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. Now, what does this mean? Why, 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 did, why did God or Nahum bring up Jacob? Well, the, the Hebrew verse here in verse 2 is actually really difficult to translate. And so some here, some commentators think that Jacob simply represents Judah. Just, you know, starts with J maybe same amount word letters in the word. And so they, they think they, they, they relate Jacob to Judah. But I take another route where I think here there's the intentionality of why Nahum uses the word Jacob. If we remember back to Jacob, Jacob, his name was changed to Israel. His name changed to Israel. And the way that happened was Jacob was wrestling with God. Right, he literally wrestled with God, and as Jacob was prevailing, God just simply laughed at him, touched his hip, and his hip socket disappeared, and he went limp. And and, and what we what we see here is that God humbled Jacob by handicapping him. Right, God humbled Jacob, and in that moment of struggle, Jacob realized that it is better to be blessed by God than it is to wrestle with Him. And right after that moment, God says, your name will now be Israel. In a similar way, what the nation of Israel here is experiencing during the time of Nahum was that the nation of Israel wrestled with God. He wrestled with, this is why Israel was, was falling down and falling down in, in front of this threat of Assyria. And God handicapped Israel. I bring Assyria as a threat against the nation, humiliating them into submission. Now here, God, God here says he's going to restore the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. In other words, Israel learned this lesson. Israel realized they need to be blessed by God to worship and serve God instead of wrestling against his will. And so God's judgment then against Nineveh represents this same transformational glory that God is working for his people, working in the nation of Israel and restoring them, restoring them back really to square one. Thanks. And so we see a transformation from Jacob to Israel. God here showing, humbling Jacob, showing Jacob, I have a purpose for you. 
in the same way he humbled the nation of Israel and now is restoring them, showing them, I have a purpose for you as well. And the way God is going to accomplish this purpose, the way God is going to restore the splendor and majesty of Israel is by attacking Nineveh, attacking the great city of Nineveh. And so we see here in this, in chapter two, that we were reminded that while this prophecy was spoken and given to Israel, God yet was directing his prophecy also against Nineveh. And we see here in verse one that Nineveh, Nineveh was, uh, he, they're going to be scattered, right? This is also not. So it's going to be scattered. It's going to be scattered, right? Verse one says, the scatterer has come up against you. Now, the scatterer here, it's a, it's a general term. It's, it's, it's not very specific here. We, we don't, at this point, Israel and Syria, they don't know what, who's going to come in and scatter them. We do, know, we do know, though, from Israel's history, that the Babylonian Empire rose up afterwards and conquered Syria. And so, so it, was, it was essentially Babylon that, that did all that. But ultimately, ultimately, the de-scatterer, the one who's in control of all of this, is God. God is indeed the one who scatters people. And this is not the first time that God is referred to as a scatterer. Right? We see this back in the Tower of Babel. Right, in Tower of Babel, the, the people gathered together to build a tower up to try to reach the heavens. And it says that God scattered them, right? Confused their language and scattered them. Well, we have God being a scatterer in, throughout the laws, throughout Deuteronomy. Whenever, Deuteron whenever Israel failed in obeying and worshiping God, God said he will scatter them amongst the nations in exile. And that's exactly what he did. We even see God scattering in the New Testament, right? In, in the book of Acts, when the apostles and disciples were gathering Jerusalem and, and, and they weren't yet going out to the ends of the earth to share the gospel. What does God do? God brings persecution down, scatters his people, his church, so that the gospel spreads out. God here has a purpose behind all this. And when we see here in Nahum that the scatterer has come up against you, Nineveh. And so here is then the challenge to Nineveh. God here gives them four imperatives, four challenges to Nineveh to simply say, hey, you, man yourself up, get ready for battle because I am coming for you. It's a challenge to Nineveh. And yet Nineveh here, Nineveh here is going to fall. You see, God here, he's coming. He's warning Nineveh. He's telling Nineveh, gather all your strength. You may think you're this great, awesome nation, undestructible, but I am coming for you. And he does this against Nineveh, not because he just does it for fun. He doesn't just do it because, you know, it's, it's about time for Syria to go away. But it says here in verse 2, at the end of verse 2, it says, for the plunderers, Nineveh, have plundered them and ruined their branches. So Nineveh, Assyria, has plundered Israel, has sucked them dry. 
and ruin their branches. And the branches here most likely refers to the branches of a vineyard. And you can imagine a vineyard just drying up and then perhaps trying out, set on fire, burned to ashes, just gone, plundered. And, and what God is going to do against them is God's going to do the same thing against Assyria. And so God here has a purpose, has a purpose behind all this, because Assyria was indeed evil. Assyria deserved judgment. Assyria was an immoral, evil empire. And therefore, God is not just doing this for fun. He's not just doing this for his people, but he's also doing it in judgment against their sins. Which then leads us to point three. Which is God here, God here has, has an execution plan. When we see here, starting in verse 3, God's glorious execution. God's glorious execution where we see here, God does not just simply give a statement, but he gives you the steps of how he's going to execute his vision, his mission. Right? And this, 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 is, this is great. Our God is an awesome God, right? He's not just some manager who gives us visions, right? Don't you just get tired of visionaries sometimes? I mean, we pastors are natural visionaries. We just give you this big, broad visionaries. But sometimes it's just, we don't give, you just want steps. You just want commands of what to do, what's going to happen. What is, what is a day-by-day process going to look like? God here gives us details. Take a look with me, verse 3. He says, the shield of the mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal. On the day he musters them, the cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. Well, we get here in verse 3 and 4, uh, this imagery of an intimidating army just coming in and invading the city. And, and this army is covered in red, just this sea of red coming in, just devouring everything in sight. I mean, in, in my mind, when I'm imagining the scene, I think of Lord of the Rings, right? And I, I think about that, that army of dead that was coming in in the last movie, right? And, the, and that army just just cover the land, destroying everything in his path. We get here this intimidating wave of soldiers, of chariots coming upon Nineveh. And when we see here the description, not only are they covered in red, but it says that the chariots come with flashing metal. And so we get this imagery of these grand chariots pulled by war horses, covered in these sheets of metal. And in the bright sun, the sun shines upon these chariots and it flashes this reflection, these sun rays, left and right. And so that when you look upon this invading army, you're just blinded by the sheer light of all the chariots coming towards you. It's, it's awesome. It's intimidating. It's a sight to behold. And it says here that the cypress spears have been brandished. 
and we get here these weapons, these spears made out of this made out of this long, heavy piece of wood, indestructible. The the weapons that can reach great lengths and cause great destruction. These chairs, these shoulders, these army race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. The streets and the squares here in verse four refers to the outer skirtish part of the city where most likely is like the outer suburbs of a city. And it's going through the streets and the squares and is attacking all people in sight. And everyone's trying to retreat back to the center of the city and this army just coming in wave after wave. It's terrorizing. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. It, it, came, it comes so fast that the war, the battle is over before they even knew it. We, get, we go down to verse five. In verse five, we see here that we see here that they that this wave comes and it comes and it continues to come. And, and it says here, he remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. Again, let's imagine Lord of Rings, these, this army just coming in. This amazing army, they're stumbling as they go. So they're just coming right on top of one another. Attacking, coming up the walls, nothing can stop them. That the siege tower here is, is, is like a battering ram getting ready to knock down the gates to the city. And the battering ram is being set up and is being protected by all sides from, from the defenders. And, and so this battering ram is going to come, it's going to knock down the doors. There is nothing to stop this army. The attackers are inching their way deeper and deeper into the city. And in verse six, we get their ultimate strategy. In verse six, it says the river gates are open. The palace melts away. We see the ultimate strategy here is to break down the dams so that the flow of rivers flood the city, destroying its foundations, ruining its protection. Again, we imagine just how destructive this can be. It says here that the palace melts away. And, 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 and at that time, Nineveh had these great palaces in the city. There is known to be two great ones. One of them was called the palace without rival. And in such, in such irony around this, because in one fell swoop, Waters destroyed this palace. A palace without rival completely undermined, stumbling down and destroyed. You see here that the confidence that Assyria had, the confidence that the Ninevites had in themselves and their power and their might is being eroded away. And this, this, this description of this attack is amazing because as Nineveh was destroyed, it was so utterly destroyed that for years, for centuries, travelers will pass by the land, forgetting that this used to be a place where a great city was built. They would totally just forget that the city was there. It wasn't until the 1800s when archaeologists actually started digging up ruins 
of an ancient city. And they connected that to, this must be where Nineveh was. And it wasn't until that time when they, they dug all that up and they, they found more of the foundations of this ancient city. And as they studied these foundations, they saw that they saw that the city was actually ruined by a great flood that came upon the land. And historians actually make note that, that it was recorded that there was heavy rainfall happening during the time when Nineveh was, 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 was being destroyed by the Babylonian army. And so we see here God's prophecy coming to life when you study history. And this tells us that what God here speaks of through his prophet Nahum was true. It tells us that Nahum was indeed a prophet of God. And this here, God accomplishes it, everything to a T. And so what we get here is that God has a plan. He's going to carry it out. And nothing will stop God from executing his plan, from executing his judgment against evildoers. God is the most powerful being in the world. Nothing can stop him. Which leads us to God's glorious outcome. And God's glorious outcome in verse 7 to 10 shows us just the misery of Nineveh. Verse 7 says, in the ESV it says, its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like those, and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Now, in the beginning of verse 7, in the ESV, it says its mistress is stripped, but the NASB, I think, has a better translation. It says it is fixed. It is fixed. She is stripped. She is carried off. And, and this here shows us that whatever God has decreed has been fixed in history. God here, God here has decreed judgment against Nineveh, and that has happened. And when the result is one that is just full of, of cries, with the slave girls lamenting, moaning like those, beating their breasts. This, this describes the mourning probably heard throughout the city. Just cries of help. Verse 8 describes what Nineveh used to be like. Nineveh was described like a pool before, a majestic pool, a pool that represents riches and wealth and comfort and luxury. It was like a pool, and, 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 and Nineveh was known just to have these majestic pools of water because it controlled the dams and controlled the rivers. It had great irrigation systems, and it had these pools of water, and now these waters run away. And, and it's like their wealth, their power, their comfort, their securities just trickling away, washing right through their hands, and they can't seem to hold on to it. They wanted to stop, but it's not going to stop. Nineveh has been sucked dry. And it's, again, there's this irony that goes on through the way God brings judgment to 
Nineveh. Nineveh was once described as a pool, and yet it is waters that destroy the city. What a great reversal of, of evil. What a great reversal of judgment. The way God works all these things out. There's a certain beauty and poetry to all this. We see this further in verse 9. And it says, plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Verse 10, desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt, knees tremble, anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Man, this is, there's this certain awesomeness to the way God accomplishes this judgment. You see here that the siege is complete. And we see a certain, again, irony, beauty, and poetry to all this. Nineveh, once the plunderers, are now empty of its treasures. Nineveh, once the aggressor, now empty of his strength. Nineveh, once the boasters now empty of his confidence. We see here that they have been plundered, that they have, they have fear, they're trembling, and there's this anguish, this paleness upon their face. They, they cannot stand before God. They can only shake to their knees and crawl before him, cowering in fear. Nineveh, the ones big bad bully has now become the victim of God's power and might. We see then, we see then God here has this amazing outcome against Nineveh. Nineveh's collapse. Nineveh's collapse demonstrates that God will do to them what they have done to other nations. There is indeed a poetic justice behind God's judgment. As we reached in verse 11 of chapter 2, this begins a summary, a recap to what God has been doing through all this, to God's mission statement, to God's plan of destruction and judgment against Nineveh. God here now provides for us a recap, a summary of what happens. In verse 11, we see here then God's glorious solution to this problem of Nineveh. Verse 11 says, where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions, where the lion lioness went, where his clubs were with none to disturb. We see in verse 11, uh, imagery of the lion. And as the Syrian Empire, the Syrian Empire was known to use the lion as a metaphor, as a symbol of their power and strength, right? That the lion here was a symbol of Assyria's lordship over the nations. And, and what we get here now is that, is that this lion, this lion is now gone, right? The Syrians... They, they, they describe themselves as lions. And we see here four ways that, uh, four different versions of a lion, verse 11, right? We had the lion, then we had the young lions, then we had the lioness, and then we had the cubs. And so it's talking about the whole majestic rank that, 
lived in Nineveh, the kings, the queens, the princes, all of them, the royal family, all of them gone. Right? And Assyria is they they thought themselves as strong and mighty like a lion. Even their goddess was portrayed as a lioness. And the irony here is that the lion now, that roar of a lion is nowhere to be found, nowhere to be heard. The den is found empty. And so then the threat of Assyria has now been vanquished, has now disappeared. Verse 12 describes describes Assyria's brutality. Verse 12 tells us what, the, what these lions have done. The lion tore enough of, for his cubs, strangled prey for his lioness. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. So Assyria was not just conqueror of nations and then suddenly, you know, all right, let me rule you guys well. No, Assyria was brutal against their captor, against their captives, right? Assyria was known to, for their brutality, for their immorality. They would put people on stakes to show off their might. Assyria tortured, tortured people. Their, their inhumanity was on full display. And in verse 13 comes God's response to all that. Where God says in verse 13, Behold, I am against you. Behold, I am against you, declare the Lord of hosts, and I will turn your chariots in smoke, and the sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers so shall no longer be heard. God is against them. And we see here that the Lord of hosts is against the enemies of his people. I mean, this, this is the last thing anyone will want to hear from God. Behold, I am against you. When you hear that, there is nothing else for you to do than to shrink away. Because when God is against you, what can you do? It says here that it is the Lord of hosts that declares this. And the Lord of hosts is usually used to describe God when he's before his army of angels. So we have this imagined army before God, and he is the Lord of that army. The Lord of hosts says, Behold, I am against you and then we see here a complete reversal chariots destroyed lions devoured assyria no longer being the prowler on their prey assyria now becomes the prey and we and we get this nice ending to verse 13 it says here the voice of your messengers no longer be heard and this becomes a contrast to what we see back in chapter 1, verse 15, where it says, Behold, the feet of him brings good news. The messenger of God becomes the only voice that is now heard. 
the messengers of Nineveh have been silenced. So we see this great reversal of God where he judges Nineveh and undoes their evil and saves his people. Which then leads us to the big idea of this passage where Nahum shows us that God's plan of redemption includes a poetic judgment against his enemies that glorifies his name amongst his people. And to, to hear all this, to see all this, it's just this sheer amazement of how God works, how God knows every detail. He's just, he's just not just coming back and asking, all right, Israel, update me. What's going on? What's Assyria doing? God knew exactly how Assyria was treating Israel and other nations, and God brought upon them that same judgment. God's poetic justice here demonstrates his glory because he doesn't just wipe stuff off the plate and start over. He redeems people by undoing the evil with their own schemes. This, this shows us just how powerful and yet how beautiful and wonderful and awesome God is. And as we connect this then to the church today, as we connect this to the New Testament church, we get here then an understanding of the cross, an understanding of what, what God has done with his son on the cross and when he raised him up again from the, on the third day. And we see here that the resurrection of Christ presents the great reversal of sin as Christ defeats death for his people and his risen body. We see here the cross becoming the turning point of history. The cross here tells us in the Gospels that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was crucified by his own people, crowned as a fallen king, tried as a criminal. He died, died in the darkest of days as God's wrath fell upon his innocent son. And yet when Jesus Christ rose from the grave on the third day, we see a reversal happen. Because as Jesus was raised from the grave, he was raised to encourage his people, to save them. He was raised from the grave to, to be placed in his rightful position as king over the earth, over the universe, over all creation. Jesus Christ was raised to be no longer a criminal, but a savior of the world. See here the great reversal of evil. And this continues on the same theme of how God's judgment comes with this great undoing of evil, even to the end times. God continues to work in this way throughout history. God continues to work this way even today. And this theme, theologians call this a decreation and ending up in a new creation. That's what's happening in our life today. That's what's happening when we talk about sanctification. When the sanctification that we see in the New Testament describes us when we're saved, we're a new creation, but in the process of us becoming a new creation, God is also doing an act of decreation, of removing the sin, bowing the sins of our life. Right? We are not perfect works yet. 
And so as we go through this, we will see how God is working through our lives, working and resting with our sins to show us that his work of salvation has not yet been complete, but yet is something that we are to journey with him with. And so we get here that God promises not just to save the world, but he does so in a way to undo and reverse the effects of sin. And that's exactly what sanctification is. It's the undoing of the effects of sin and rebuilding you into the image of his son, into the image of Jesus Christ. You see, when God has saved you, he didn't just pluck you away from hell and put you in heaven. God right now is working in you. He's working your life right now to redeem you and transform you into a child of God. And we get this and we understand this when we look through the Old Testament, that God is working in our lives. It's, it's why we still struggle with sin. And yet, when we do struggle with sin, we get to the other end. God gets the glory because he's doing this amazing work in us. And we're reminded in Romans chapter 8. Verse 28, that we know that, where it says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who call, those who are called according to his purpose, God is working in us for good. And we are reminded, reminded that he is doing all this for our sake, that God seeks to restore the glory of his image in you through the blood of Christ. And God is continuing to do all this and the work is not done. And we, we see this because God, you know this in your own life, God will use your idols, your heart idols, and he will, he will use them against you to show you that God alone is your hope. Enjoy. God will remove your securities, your comforts, to show you that He is your strength and protection. God will strip away your treasures to show you that He is your blessings and riches. God will humble your pride so that you'll ultimately answer to Him alone. God works in all these ways, and we see it throughout our lives. And more than that, as God works in our lives and we work on wrestling with certain sin issues, certain just these sins that plague our life, we have to remember that when God looks upon you as his child, God is for us. And when God is for us, who can be against us? This should bring us comfort, as it did bring comfort to the people of Israel when they heard this prophecy from Nahum. Remember, this judgment against Nineveh was meant to be a comfort for God's people in the same way when God says he's going to work through this world, but it's going to take some time. You're going to need to exercise patience. You're going to have to suffer. We remember that God's promises becomes our comforts. And this is especially important as we are all kind of going through right now a transition period. 
not just a transition period because you are young adults, but transition period because our communities, our churches, our our relationships, our the, the schools, workplaces, they're slowly opening back up and we're slowly gathering back together like we are here tonight, like we like we are on Sundays and different other places. We're all coming back together, but we must remember that we're not returning back to a normal way of life, that we are actually moving forward to our next stage of life. And what that means is that we are coming back now after this pandemic to really a different world, right? A presidential election has happened. We've seen all these different news happening throughout America. We see the state of the church changing right before us. And the church of Christ in America, for us here in our communities, we're facing some of our greatest challenges, are we not? coming out of this pandemic. But let us remember that God is with us. God is for us. God is on our side. And that the trials before us may seem big and we don't know what to expect in the future. We don't know what's going to happen with certain things. We don't know how we will be treated in the workplace. We don't know how our relationships will be like with our families, with our friends. We may indeed be persecuted because of our beliefs, because of our opinions, because, because of our faith in God. But let us continue to lean upon Christ who works all things for our good for his glory and let us remember let us remember that God is against the sins of this world God is against the enemies of his church because God is for his people God is for his church and therefore let us take comfort in that knowing that the great and sovereign God that we serve still working and sustaining us here today. God works in this way. Therefore, hold steadfast to him. Hold steadfast to the cross, to Christ. And find your comfort in knowing God's judgment, his future promises of judgment against all those who challenges church against all those who attack the gospel, they will face their day before God. And as we remember back in Nahum chapter one, God will by no means clear the guilty. This should give us confidence to go forth. This should give us confidence to continue to proclaim the gospel. I share all this to give you comfort, not so that you have this bonus to fight back against society or against this world, because that's not what we're called to do. God is the one who fights. But we are called to be a messenger. Behold the feet of him who brings good news. We become the voice that declares the same prophetic voice that declares the judgment of God that's coming, but also the grace of God that's found in the gospel. We don't need to fight. We just need to proclaim. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to do here in this world. That's how we become light. 
we proclaim and we live out our faith for God, for his glory. And we do all this remembering that God will fight for us because God is for us. He's against the sins of this world. So with that, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your amazing grace that girds us with courage, with comforts to go forth in this world and continue to proclaim your son, the savior of the world. Let us then do so. Let us be your messengers. Let us be the voice that the world needs to hear. Lord, I pray for all of us here and all of us online that we will continue to live our lives for the gospel, that we will live our lives for God, that each one of us will continue to live our lives in a way that glorifies your name and proclaims the gospel of Christ. And I pray for anyone here who may not know you. I pray for their faith, for their salvation. And Lord, that they will hear this message and they will come to see the great, awesome power that you have and how you have raised your son up from the grave to demonstrate your victory over sin and death. Lord, I pray that they will come to know you. And as we go off into our community groups and to our discussion groups, and as we continue to fellowship with one another, whether online or here in person, I pray, Lord, that we will do so in such a way that honors you, that encourages us to be faithful ambassadors of Christ. Let us do so in such a way that glorifies your name. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that gives us not just this big, vision statement, but also gives us details of how you're going to work this out. And that shows us just how much you care for us, how much you love us, how much you have thought of everything, how everything is so intentional. Lord, thank you for being a great and awesome God. May we then trust in you, trust in your plan, and trust in the way you will use our lives. I pray all this in your holy and precious name. Amen.